0: Peyton Manning and the Rise of the Big Orange. The Bush Push. Johnny Football. Cam Newton's Four Months to Glory. Vince Young and the Greatest Performance Ever on the Biggest Stage. The unforgettable college football players and moments come to life again at Saturday Lives Forever, a new podcast series from Saturday Down South. I'm Matt Hayes, and I invite you to come with me on a journey through college football's glorious past, where we celebrate yesteryear with special guests, and learn more than we thought we knew about the sport's iconic past. The season one launch of Saturday Lives Forever is just around the corner. So subscribe and download on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, what's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast. I am Connor O'Gara. Will, I am so fired up that there are no more Saturdays without football. Like, I I don't even care that the most relevant national game between Power 5 teams, the only game between Power 5 teams, is with two teams with one combined bowl appearance in the last four years. Shout out to Illinois and Nebraska. Mm -hmm. It feels like we made it, though, doesn't it? Yeah. No, it, it really does. And, like...
1: I feel like I almost felt guilty last season for like not enjoying football as much as I usually do. And the more people I've talked to this year, it's like, this is at an all time high. It's like the opposite of that, because it's like, I feel like, you know, stadiums are gonna be back full again. And I feel like last year with just empty Tiger Stadium was so dystopian to me. Now I can appreciate it so much more. We talked about it a little bit. It's like last year broke a streak of like 20 years for me. Like I, I grew up in Baton Rouge. I was like born in Tiger Stadium and I just didn't go to a game. I I, I was the first time in you know 20 years i hadn't been to a game and looking at the schedule this year it's just like man like i wish i was going to la man like i'm just i don't know like every every day is just a little bit more like oh let me pick out my let me get my purple section going let me get my you know it's 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 an exciting
0: time week oh week oh i'm thinking coach (laughs) oh week zero Week zero. week zero. I don't have a ton of week zero thoughts about the actual games though. I do think that everyone, I can't wait for everyone to have this weird moment late on Saturday nights. Maybe they're scrolling through their phones, looking at Twitter. They're watching CBS Sports Network on channel 758 or something. And they realize that Nick Starkel is still playing football. That's going to be a great aha <laughs> uh-huh moment. you look him up and they're like, oh, wow. Sixth year sixth year in college, Nick Starkel. Good for you, man. Uh, my only week zero take. If you hate the name week zero, you're complaining about the wrong thing. Because it would be really weird if week one, like if we called it that, even though 97% of the FBS teams aren't playing, then it would be week two. So yeah, anyway, all, all, all you week zero haters, like that's what you would be asking for by, by doing that and changing the name. So just embrace week zero. It's okay if something is called week zero. And also if you lose, it's kind of like, hey, it doesn't matter, week zero. Week zero,
1: real quick. Oh man, the, the, I was like, yeah, Nebraska, Illinois. Incredible coaching
0: matchup, right? Scott Frost and Brett Bieleb. All time... Big Ten guy coaching moment, um, I think it'll be for Bilama, because he's gonna have this like this this realization probably when he steps on the field of for the first time in a Big Ten game in a in a decade for him, where he looks around and he's like, Yep, this is this is about right. Half empty stadium, <laughs> big ten west. We're just going to get after it. We're going to run the ball probably 50, 60 times. Scott oh, Frost yeah. is going to do the same exact thing. We're going to punt probably like 10 times a piece or something like that. We're going to talk about how important field goals are and all that garbage. We're going to get to brag about the physicality. Don't exactly have high expectations. Connor, for that have one. you started growing your grass out in preparation for football season? Like Northwestern? <laughs> yeah. I have not.
1: With the Big Ten mentality, I just imagine that you know to be game ready, you really got to get those extra couple inches
0: in there. Got a fresh mow in yesterday, so we're good there. <laughs> Shout out kegs and eggs. We're, we're taking care of business. No, we, we, keep it, we keep it low down. Well, no, it's actually a little bit longer down here in Florida, but that's just because that's, that's the way we got to keep it. Can't have it too low, otherwise it dries out really, really quickly. Week zero, I will say this. It has more significance than the Alliance. <laughs> I will give it that. What a crocky! you-know-what that was, man. <laughs> what a freaking joke unbelievable as a big 10 grad which i am i've said that before on this podcast i'm an indiana grad i grew up in the midwest born and raised wait a you're accredited no. Wow. Actually, yeah. No, no, no. no I was no, about no. to
1: Indiana say, is, hold on now. No. They would kick you out in, right now. You might as well light that deployable on fire if you're not AAU
0: accredited in the Big I, Ten. Right? I, I'd take that. <laughs> hey, they didn't kick out Nebraska when Nebraska lost its AAU accreditation. Uh, they did not kick out Indiana. I don't think Indiana's ever lost it, come to think of it. I don't know when they got it. I'll have to dig into that, fact check it when we finish this episode. Definitely not going to do that. but. Anyways, we've got a ton to get to today, as you can see by the length of this episode, but I wanted to give everyone just a little something extra, because we're not going to have an early week episode Next week, we're going to instead have a pod that drops on Thursday morning that we're going to record on Wednesday. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of, this will tide you over until then Lauren Sisler of ESPN and AL.com. She is going to join us. So is Gary Stokin, who of course runs the Chick-fil-A kickoff game in Atlanta. We've had him on the pod a bunch, very different conversations with them, but I think you will enjoy both of those conversations first though, well prediction season isn't over. I know some people thought, hey, maybe prediction season. All right, that was last week. We did the crystal ball, all that stuff. No, 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 new I'm going to do Heisman flyers, and I'm going to explain why they're flyers and not just chalky favorites. We're going to do Power 5 champs, playoff, and national champs. So with the Heisman, I never really do like a preseason Heisman Trophy prediction, or if I do, I don't really stand by it. I do it because it's like, all right, you know, if we're we're doing like a round table discussion on like Saturday tradition, you know, Saturday on South, something like that, then whatever, I'll, I'll, I'll throw a name out there. But I don't really believe in the premise of doing a preseason Heisman pick because this is a narrative driven award and I have the numbers to prove it. I'm working on the trademark. We're at least maybe going to get some t-shirts, hopefully, in the near future. Friends don't let friends bet on Heisman favorites in the preseason. Mm -hmm. That's friends don't let friends bet on Heisman favorites in the preseason. Trademark, like I said, working on it. We'll get there. If you bet on Trevor Lawrence or Justin Fields to win the Heisman last year in the preseason, sorry, you threw your money away. Because plus 350 and plus 400, those odds sucked. Let's focus on that top two. Preseason Heisman favorites. Go all the way back to when Mark Ingram won the 2009 Heisman. How many times, Will, has someone in the preseason top two Heisman odds actually won the award dating back to 2009?
1: Dating back to 2009. So I'm trying to think because 09 was after Bradford, right? So I would... That would be the only guy I could really think of because Tebow won his before then. Uh, so after 09, just after 09. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. After 09, um, I mean, I guess it would have to be just Mariota, right?
0: That is correct, sir. Just one. Mm-hmm. Think about that. That's a lot, man. That's, that's 12, year, yeah, 12 years of data right there in which preseason Heisman favorite, whatever. And if you bump it out to preseason top three Heisman favorites in that stretch dating back to 2009, the only other player to win the Heisman was, could you guess that one too? Oh gosh, number three. No, that's about all I got. Baker. Baker Mayfield. Okay. Number three. So that makes sense. So last year, I said you were better off trying to take a flyer on somebody like Kyle Trask at 30 to 1. I might have also said Dylan McCaffrey at 75 to 1. That one didn't work out. The Trask one, a little bit closer, though. And it, did he win? No. But I'd argue that was still a much better investment than Trevor Lawrence, who finished runner up, basically was in the same exact discussion as Trask was late in the season, although 30 to 1 versus three and a half to 1, which would you rather have, of course. That Trask Devantis- is
1: going to be underappreciated Because that was really his award to lose with about what two or three weeks left. Like to say that Lawrence was second, that Heisman race is almost
0: disingenuous. You know what I'm saying? To be fair, there would have potentially been if he struggled in the SEC championship against Mac. That's what we were talking about. if Mac had won that and looked far and away better. It would have been tough to be like, oh, Kyle Trask, you deserve this over Mac Jones. But Lawrence was no part of the conversation. Was my point. Like whenever he was out for that game against Notre Dame, it was like that was pretty much. And then crept back in. Yeah. And ended up being runner up at the end, but still at the same time, it's like it it felt a little bit more lifetime achievement exactly than it did than it did with trask Devontae smith was 101 to win the award and i still think he was like 10 to 1 going into the sec championship it might have been even worse it might have been like 25 to 1 i don't remember so that's why i would avoid this year don't put a preseason heisman bet on spencer Rattler, dj Uyangalale, yeah JT. don't do it on jt daniels or even bryce young because those guys will be held to too high of a standard for me to think that those odds are worth it, even if they do win. If I'm doing a somewhat chalky pick, Derek King, FanDuel has his odds at 25 to 1, coming off the torn ACL, no Clemson in the regular season though. We talked about Miami having the bookend loss potential year and how strange that would be. Miami returns everyone but their tight end, Brevin Jordan, on offense. They're number two among Power 5 teams in percentage of returning production, the great stat that Bill Connolly puts together every year. Only UCLA, LSU's week one opponent, has more returning production. Derek King knows Rhett Lashley's offense now, and I think he could have one of those 45 touchdown type seasons because he's going to be back. You don't need to make the playoff to win the Heisman. People forget Lamar won it in 2016, putting up those stupid numbers. People also forget they got demolished by Houston when their offensive line didn't block a soul. And then Kentucky beat them in the regular season finale. So they they lost two in a row going in. They, they They were nowhere near the college football playoff and he still won the Heisman because he put up ridiculous numbers. He made the viral plays and he was really fun to watch. Other flyers that I like, two others at 25 to one. Emory Jones and Bajan Robinson, the Texas running back. Emory, it's a little bit of the unknown with him, right? Like if he has one of those years where we're doing the Tebow comms and Florida beats Bama at home, which head ball coach thinks that's gonna happen. He did go on record and say that this week. Then Emory can follow that Heisman narrative. And then Robinson at 25 to one, that dude was a monster once he got work last year as a true freshman. They were making Ricky Williams comparisons to this kid. 8.2 yards per carry, had the home run plays. He can go viral. You sort of need that element, especially if you're going to be a running back in this day and age. People talk a lot about Sark and his passing game schemes. But Najee turned into a force with Sark as the OC. And yeah, part of his former five star crew. I get it. But like he really developed in the way that, that Sark would draw some of these looks up for him. And he got the volume as well. And hey, we got away from thinking the quarterback was just destined to win the Heisman forever last year. So, could we do that again? If that's the thinking, maybe Derek Stingley, 70 to one. Maybe that's intriguing because we're also now more accepting of data than we've ever been. It doesn't have to be you need to go have eight interceptions, score several offensive touchdowns. Would that help? Of course. By the way, do I like the idea of Stingley playing offense? Not really. We talked about that with T-Bob. Maybe he'll play there. Maybe he won't. But if you think that we turned a new leaf in the Heisman voting process with Devante winning last year, and we can say, hey, best player in college football, maybe you should win this award, then Derek Stingley can be that guy. And there's one other. It's very tempting for me to say Desmond Ritter because I think I'd like that a little bit more though if the odds weren't 30 to one. That's still for me, that's a little bit too chalky. If they were 100 to one, something like that, I'd be in because as I'll get to, I think Cincinnati makes the playoff. So if those uh, those odds were to drop to 70 to one, if he gets off to a slow start, but Cincinnati is still undefeated going into that Indiana Notre Dame stretch, I would pounce on those odds. The last non-Power 5 player to win the Heisman Trophy was who? Do you know that off the top of your head? Non-Power 5 player. Goodness. Um, Key caveat there. Was it Andre Ward? It was Ty Detmer. Oh. 1990. Okay. 1990. So you combine Charlie, I think you combine Charlie Ward and Andre Ware, right? Andre Ware. That's that's who I meant to say, yeah. And it was, I think he was 89. Was he 89? He might have been before that. Wow. 90s college football was just a, 80s (laughs) was just a vibe. Yeah. Very much so. Massive shoulder pads. Yeah, back in the day. Beat Rocket Ismail, Ty Detmer did in 1990 Mm -hmm. with BYU. We're treating Notre Dame as a Power 5 team for this whole discussion. The last non-Power 5 player to finish in the top two of the Heisman voting. Marshall Falk, 1992. You weren't going to get that one. That would have been tough. That would have been really tough. That's facts was well, not going to get that one. <laughs> yeah. A non power five player hasn't been in the top four of the voting in the playoff era. Jordan Lynch, Northern Illinois quarterback, was the last one to do so a decade ago. But Grayson McCall at 100 to 1. I'm intrigued and maybe part of it is like, all right, we had Jimmy Chadwell on the podcast. I can admit that. I looked a little bit more at his offense, kind of like some of the, the, the triple option things that he's able to do and why it's so unique, unique because they actually throw the ball out of it. So the McCall argument, Spencer Rattler is Pro Football Focus's only returning quarterback who graded better than McCall last year. Dude averaged 10 yards per passing attempt, 5 yards per carry. That's not necessarily something you see very often, yes, even at the group of 5 level. Coastal kind of lacks the schedule for this to probably happen, but Grayson McCall could very easily have a 50 touchdown year and he has his top two targets back. The entire offensive line is back as well. For a team that America already kind of loves, like Coastal Carolina became kind of America's team last year with the, the way that the BYU thing happened and all that. Voters a little bit more aware of him. Could be another one of these atypical candidates who breaks through and actually gets that type of look. So that's how I would rather look at the Heisman other than just pick like some chalky preseason favorite. Will, any thoughts on that? Let me ask you this question really
1: quick. So, I think last year was a good example of a lot of times Heisman voters will default default to teams, right? So, you know, Mm. because Alabama obviously was just beating the brakes off everybody and it was really kind of between, you know, who was going to get their Heisman nod. Let me ask you this. If A&M has a
0: great season, who do you think is their chosen Heisman guy? Haynes King. And Haynes King gets the starting job something that we talked about a while ago. And when we had Dave Pasch on here, that was one of the things I pushed back on a little bit when they said on the broadcast, "Ah, there's really not much separation between Haynes King and Zach Calzada, despite the fact that everything we were hearing on a college station was look, Haynes King's going to be the guy. I think he's the ultimate X factor in the SEC this year, but probably he would be able to follow that narrative. Now, if Isaiah Spiller has like a 2,000 yard season, something crazy like that, yeah, never say never, but he he would probably the guy. I don't think Debarvan Leal would be able to rack up the numbers that you would probably need from a, in a uh, more interior defensive line spot um, to make that happen. He's not going to be in Dominican Sue or anything like that. But I would probably give it to King.
1: Yeah, that would be interesting. I, I I love your picks outside of that. I'm um you know always interested by Dylan Gabriel at UCF. I do think he takes a step back with Gus Malzahn just because we've Agreed. seen. Gus Malzahn's not super QB friendly. Uh, I think that's what people are going to start to realize is that, yeah, like I think he's more talented than Ritter, but I, I think you hit the nail on the head that Ritter has this schedule and these national games to where if there's a group of five guy,
0: I, I think it's probably him. I hate the 30 to one. I hate it. That's not good enough. If you can get a hundred to one on Desmond Ritter, do so.
1: Yeah, exactly. So like give and, us some incentive, these. man. Like don't just make me yeah. look
0: back at myself and be like, a Dumbass. I know. It's like they already sniffed out like the part that I was going to lay out there about the the platform is there. If he shows up in those two big time games, something like that. And if he does something that we haven't seen before, that's the other thing. gotta do something we haven't seen before? Devontae did things that we hadn't seen before. Mm -hmm. And that's why he was able to break through as a wide receiver. So I'll probably talk more about the Heisman um, like in November when it actually matters or something like that. But that's kind of the way that I would approach it in the preseason. My power five champs little bit chalky here, I'll admit it. ACC, Clemson. Big 12, Oklahoma. Big 10, Ohio State. Pac-12, Oregon. SEC, Georgia. Group of five, Cincinnati. And Independence, uh, Liberty, obviously. Though I do have Matt Corral beating Malik Willis in November. Cannot wait for that game in Oxford. Hugh Freeze's return to Ole Miss is going to be incredible. Mm -hmm. But Liberty being the better independent team than Notre Dame this year um, as well. Uh, Okay. So like, yeah, a little bit chalky. What's not so chalky. I think Ohio state loses twice in the regular season once to Oregon who then Oregon loses regular season games at UCLA and at Utah. And then Ohio state also loses at home to Penn state. Noah Cain runs all over the Ohio state defense, but Penn state also loses twice in big 10 play. So Ohio state and Oregon are both, two loss conference champs ohio state with only the one loss in conference play goes to the big 10 championship that my friends is how cincinnati gets into the playoff aha there we go with the playoff elimination game at notre dame the bearcats knock out the only other big threat who can come in and not follow the typical power five one loss or undefeated conference champ I already talked about Cincinnati a lot. First group of five teams to start off in the top 10 in the college football playoff era. Significant. So I'm sticking with what I said in the spring. And if you've been listening since then, this is going to be a repeat for you. If you haven't, my playoff picks, Clemson, Georgia, Oklahoma, Cincinnati. That means no Bama, no Ohio State. That means I have Georgia beating Alabama in the SEC championship, because Mm -hmm. I think the Clemson game in the opener will serve as Georgia's measuring stick, even though we know the schedule is going to get a lot easier. But they'll have that one in their back pocket. They'll go back to the drawing board. They'll figure out how to handle a front like Clemson's, because Alabama's is going to be similar but I think Georgia finally gets over the hump against Alabama. Maybe they're a little bit healthier in Atlanta than they they will be in Charlotte for the opener, and that could play a part in this too, but I think they have a balanced attack, no blown leads this time against Alabama. Darian Kendrick interception to close it out. So does Georgia win it all to the 1980 jokes end? Well, I have Georgia beating Oklahoma, another thriller in the semifinal. Shades of 2017, of course, but Mm -hmm. Georgia finds a way to win it, even though I really do like Oklahoma's defense coming into this year, and I feel like I've said that a ton. On the other side, Clemson, Cincinnati, back and forth early, but Venables adjusts at halftime as he often does, and Clemson rolls in the second half of that one. So it's a Clemson-Georgia national championship, a rematch of the opener, but I have Clemson winning. I know, Georgia fans, I would would be there with a shoulder to cry on if this happened to you. DJ Uyengle in the national championship has the, I should have won the Heisman game. We've seen that before. We could see it again. Georgia's defense finally doesn't have an answer after it was putting the pieces together down the stretch. They can't force that key turnover. Lynn J. Dixon shines in a post Travis Etienne world and Georgia comes up just short yet again. 38, 31, game for the ages. Will, what do we think of all that?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's moments like this where I don't envy your job. Um, Cause that is, uh, <laughs> that's a lot. That is like just in terms, I, I, you know, it all makes sense, obviously. I think that it's one of those things that's like, it's like what we said about A&M and Bama. It's like, it, it, makes, it makes so much sense. Like it would be sad, but it would make a lot of sense where it's like, okay, um, because we talked about Miami with the bookend losses, Georgia could do something similar with Clemson, and then I was thinking with Bama. You know what I'm saying? They could run the table mm-hmm. and they could do X, Y, and Z, get to the SC Championship, lose to Bama, but it would be even more ridiculous, and I hate to say it, more Georgia, if they beat Alabama, beat another team, and play Clemson again. But you would think at that point, you know, Hopefully, you'd want to give the benefit of the doubt. If they make it that far, I'd want to give the benefit of the doubt doubt to Georgia, considering Georgia had already seen Clemson, and a lot of that would be missing personnel. Hopefully, they would get healthier down the stretch. Um, But, yeah, no, I I, I think that
0: uh, makes too much sense, Connor. This would be kind of diabolical. And I come back to this. I just think Clemson is in for one of those years. I really do. And I think they have a very similar DNA to what they had in 2018. And I think the rest of the college football world is just one step behind where they're going to be at. It's weird not picking Bama to win an SEC championship. I think I've only done that once in mm-hmm. this job. And I think it was, what did I have? It might have been 20, yeah, I think it was 2019 that I had Georgia winning it all. And I didn't have Bama winning the SEC championship or something like that. So this is a typical. I don't know how Georgia fans would feel coming off the Bama win to then still not win a national championship. Right. Because they're almost like their own national championships, right? Like Bama is held in such a high regard because of what it's been built up to be with the way that these losses have happened. Man, Cameron Cook, my guy Perry as well, my Georgia buddies, all my Georgia friends, Emery Picker as well, Emory and Kelsey Picker. I would feel for you. I really would. But... My predictions, eh, season-long predictions haven't always been great. Crystal Ball has been a lot better, so who knows? Let's go to my interviews. First, we've got Lauren Sisler. She does great work with ESPNAL.com as well. She'll be on the sidelines for Jacksonville State UAB next week, and I'm sure she'll be doing some SEC games uh, in the near future as well. She's also got the Mizzou game on coming up as well uh, I know and then we'll uh, go to Gary Stokin who will give us some behind the scenes details for the Bama Miami and then the the Ole Miss Louisville games in the Chick-fil-A kickoff games which were canceled last year. Note that I asked Gary about blowing up the Alliance with a matchup before it was announced that LSU and USC were going to play in Vegas. So first Lauren then Gary. I'm now excited to be joined by a very special guest, a first time guest. It is Lauren Sisler. Lauren is going to be on the call for a bunch of college football games this year, starting with the Jacksonville State UAB game next Wednesday night, which I'm sure that's gonna be really popular with the gambling world as well. Um, Lauren, I wanted to know how you got so lucky because by virtue of doing the Wednesday night game, that means that you get to be at home to watch like all of college football Saturday, right?
2: Um, Actually, no, not so fast. I okay. thought that was the case when I first was uh, <laughs> given the assignment. Um, I was thinking to myself, oh man, this is great going into a holiday weekend. I'm going to get to, you know, come home and watch all the season openers and, you know, be at home in the comfort of my living room, getting to eat all the junk food I want. And uh, no. so I will actually be going to Missouri um, for the second week one game on the on the docket. So, of course, I've got the, the Wednesday night game. And then Thursday morning, I will literally drive back from Montgomery to Birmingham, jump on a plane, head to Missouri, um, Missouri, Central Michigan. So certainly looking forward to that one. Uh, but it it is crazy because they all start to kind of run together and you know hitting the reset button it comes fast and furious and you just have to be kind of ready for it and you don't want to get too far ahead of yourself you know I'm really focused in right now on UAB Jacksonville State doing a lot of coaches calls production meetings you know just gathering all my information right now talking to as many people as I can and while I would love to get a her- early head start on the Missouri game I can't get too far ahead of myself because then everything starts to bleed together and it can get kind of confusing. So compartmentalizing is a big thing that you have to learn to do well uh, on, on my side of uh, the fence here.
0: Will there be a pre-game dance routine for either one of those games? Or is that more of like just an impromptu thing, kind of in the moment, whatever comes to mind?
2: Uh, yeah, the sideline shimmy. I'm glad you brought that up. You know, people <laughs> ask me like, where did that come from? Uh, the, backstory on it is so you know as a former gymnast i you know we we used to do different things to kind of keep ourselves loose kind of keep ourselves you know warmed up during gymnastics meets because there's a lot of downtime and you know your body just gets cold super quick and when you can't actually be out there you know getting on the equipment and doing things when you have to sit and wait for a long time that's what ends up being on the football field it's a lot of hurry up and wait you get out there like two hours before kickoff You watch warm ups and then you kind of sit down, take a break, you talk to some people, and you kind of got to get loosened up. And it's sort of that anxiousness, the nervousness, the excitement, everything that's about to happen as the game kicks off. And so, actually, the sideline shimmy is something I started doing just, I found myself like loosening up more and, you know, kind of extracting some of the nerves and and kind of playing into the excitement of, of the game being, you know, close to kicking off. And what I didn't realize is that when we do rehearsals before a game, so we always rehearse the open with the crew. So obviously the booth will pass it down to me. I'll do my little bit, send it back up to them. It just kind of gets us all warmed up, ready to go, and and ready to go for the open because it's probably the one, one of the few things in the game that's actually rehearsed before things kick off. And then after that, you know, everything's fair game. And so I didn't realize this, but when we would do rehearsals, you know, the camera was there. I just didn't realize they were recording. I always just thought, oh, this is rehearsals. <laughs> like they've got the camera on me. No big deal. Well, then one of my dear friends, um, El Hobel, that works up in Bristol, said, hey Lauren, I gotta send you something. What's your what's your cell phone and text you something. I'm like, oh, okay, I gave it to her, and I get this message and it's like me dancing in front of the camera, like. I was at, I think it was a <laughs> Boise State game. And she goes, yeah, so by the way, we've been kind of doing this every week, but there was a little bit of concern that you might be embarrassed if you found out that we were recording you the whole time. And I was like, actually, that's funny you say that. It takes very little to embarrass me, not at all surprised. And, hey, it works. And so I had posted that video, and that people were like, where's the sideline shimmy? So now it's almost like become a thing where it's like I sometimes have to, like, tee it up. Oh, this is a good song. This is a good one to record, you know, so – um, you know, I, I, I try to post those, you know, periodically throughout the season. And, and, you know, I find that if I don't, it's a big disappointment to people. So I got to be on my game this year and make sure I, uh, bring the sideline shimmy back. It'll be back in full effect, uh, next Wednesday.
0: Is sideline shimmy trademarked by you?
2: Uh, it ought to be, don't you think? Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, we were trying to come up with different things. I mean, the Sisler shimmy would work, the sideline yep. shimmy you know, uh, it's kind of just transcended into whatever it is. But I definitely think there should be a trademark on it. I, I, I think I need to work on that.
0: Okay, so this is something that I've always wondered about. And I'm not sure how many people listening to this have, have wondered this same thing. This is a little bit of kind of an inside baseball type of thing. But I I always wonder about reporting from the sidelines and being able to report on injury news. Someone like Michelle Tafoya, uh, our mutual friend Cole Kublik, they get injury information that sometimes i'm just like how in the world were you able to kind of process what happened on the field and then get someone to tell you what exactly the status of a specific player was so how do you go about that and have you ever been in that spot where you've had to report on like a very significant injury that happens in game and you have to get an answer from someone
2: oh yeah i mean it is a difficult place to be because i will tell you typically going into the games i'll talk with the sids the sports information directors they kind of or the liaison between the media and make sure that we're, you know, you know, on our P's and Q's, following protocols. Every team is different. Every program is different. Every coach likes to handle things differently. And that's one thing I ask them, you know, during the week as we're preparing is how do you handle injury updates? Because there are some schools that are super transparent. Hey, you can go talk to our athletic trainer right there on the sideline. Feel free to, you know, talk to him. If you see an injury, they'll give you an update as much as they can give you but i do find more often than not it's hey we'll give you a some sort of update but it'll be pretty vague like you know lower lo- you know lower leg injury will return or lower leg injury you know will not return to the game and that's kind of all we get so it is a tough place to be in because you, you can see things unfold. You can see the emotion on the player's face, especially if they end up, you know, getting nicked up pretty bad and have to go sit out for a few plays. And then you kind of have to disseminate, like, is it a serious injury or are they just more ticked off that they're not back in the game? Right. And then just kind of watching them on the sidelines, watching the trainers sort of, you know, uh kind of feel around is it a knee injury is it an ankle injury and then that's my job to kind of disseminate that information and and sort of share that on the air at least give that intel to some of the you know uh guys in the control room and or the booth because then they can get a camera on them and and kind of have a visual um you know what they're seeing as well just so the viewer at home can kind of have an idea of what's going on but it is a tough place to be because especially when you have a star player go out I mean, then the Twitter feed blows up and it's like Mm -hmm. everyone's like, oh, I hope he returns. Like, what's the status? What's the status? How come we haven't gotten an update? And sometimes we're just not allowed to get an update. And that's what makes it super difficult um, when we're not given that freedom to, you know, be able to share the information, you know. And maybe we're seeing something, um, you know, significant and we can kind of give our observations but also we have to kind of skirt that line of, okay, what's an observation? But then what's also, uh, you know, what's also essentially assuming something? Because I certainly wouldn't want to make a report is is injured and maybe they're not. Or someone has significantly injured a particular part of their body. That, you know, I think it's an ankle injury, but next thing you know it's a torn ACL. And so that makes it really difficult, too. So it definitely, uh, there's a lot going on down on the sidelines during a game and trying to figure that all out without um, you know certainly trying to be the doctor so to speak and allowing sort of the visuals uh, tell the story just as much as the actual injury itself.
0: So with your roles you sort of get the best of both worlds because you get to do local Alabama Auburn content for AL.com, but you also get to to have some of those unique Saturday experiences being on the sidelines and kind of being in the thick of everything. What do you prefer? Do you like more being on the sidelines for like an iron bowl or getting a one-on-one sit down with Saban?
2: Man, that's, you know, it's, it's unique and it's very different. Um, the first thing I will say that, I've learned in this industry, especially being in Alabama. So, you know, I, I moved to Alabama in 2011. I've been here, I guess I'm, I'm at the decade mark, which is really crazy. Uh, I will actually probably be entering into like, I, I basically arrived at the end of August, of 2011, working for the local CBS affiliate. Then obviously, as you mentioned, transition to ale.com still do a lot of content for them. And then of course, ESPN. And one thing that, you know, I kind of had to learn and in the process of it, you know, you, Uh, we get these opportunities to be in these press conference rooms with these coaches, these athletes, you know, the people surrounding the program, but those one-on-one opportunities are very cherished moments, right? And especially when I did get my first one-on-one with Nick Saban, you know, it was years in the making to be able to establish a relationship, establish that trust and say, Hey, you know, we're going to let her do this because you know, everyone wants a piece of the pie. Every media outlet wants to, sit down with coach or sit down with a particular player and, you know, to have that one-on-one conversation, but figuring out sort of the, uh, you know, the hook, you know, why are we sitting down? What's the purpose of this? What do we want to be able to give to the audience that maybe coach is not giving in a weekly press conference? Uh, but having those moments to just sit down and have that conversation to me, is so much fun and definitely where I love to be in that element. And even when I've had the opportunity to do Nick Saban's radio show uh, you know, it, it's really cool to be able to, you know, kind of get under the surface a little bit. And, you know, a lot of people, of course, want to talk the X's and O's and want to, you know, talk about the game specifically. But as a media member, I get to do that all week. So when I have the opportunity to actually sit down and ask him more personalized questions or specific incidences and things he's dealt with with players and, you know, just to kind of like draw almost insight from him, I think that's what's so unique and neat about coaches and especially Nick Saban and how he, you know, directs his messaging at particular topics or particular people. Um, You know, you always see like some of his rants, he'll go off on a press conference or, you know, basically have a message after a reporter will ask a question. And sometimes the question and his response have nothing to do with each other, but he knew in his mind going into that press conference, he had a message he wanted to share, whether it was for the NCAA, whether it was for maybe his players, And I think that's what's really cool because then when I've sat down with one-on-one interviews with him or in coaches' meetings when I'm covering the game from the sidelines, we're getting a different perspective from coach. We're getting a lot more raw, authentic, you know, candid uh, response from him and the questions that we're asking when we're kind of behind closed doors. And, um, you know, it's just really cool to kind of see his perspective and the coach's perspective in those settings where it's information that may never see the light of day, it might be off the record, but it definitely gives me a different, unique perspective and how to go out there and do my job week in and week out on the sidelines, be able to share that information with the audience and make them human, make those coaches human. What what humanizes Coach Saban? What humanizes you know, Coach Harson at Auburn, Gus Malzon previously at Auburn, whoever, you know, is at the helm and allowing people kind of some of that inside baseball, as you mentioned, like that insight to, you know, what kind of drives them every day. So I think that's really fun and really cool. But then on the other side of it, like you said, being at an Iron Bowl game in the thick of it all, getting to be in the thick of the fans, the pageantry, the traditions, there's something so special about that, too than just sitting in a quiet room with a microphone having a conversation. So they're definitely very different. Um, I would just say the, the adrenaline and sort of the emotion is much more attached to that Iron Bowl game or, you know, that SEC championship game where Jalen Hurts had to jump in and, and fill in for an injured Tua. You know, the, that brings a different dynamic. And I think both of them I definitely relish in and cherish. And certainly take both of them, you know, take a different approach to each of them. And that's something I've had to learn, you know, from from the start of my career in sports television to where I'm at now. And it's still a learning process. You know, I say I'm always a work in progress, but, you know, it's definitely an honor. And, you know, being able to be that voice, that platform, that voice for the coaches, the players, the fans, the, the parents of the players, getting to tell their stories is something that's so imp- so powerful for me and so impactful That it has been a big part of what I, you know, have developed as a reporter and hope to, you know, carry on with me throughout my career as as a reporter on the sidelines that maybe gets a, a unique perspective that others don't.
0: With Sabin too, the art of asking him a question is something that, that takes a long time <laughs> to figure out. I mean, like everybody sees the clips and stuff and everybody goes back to the Maria Taylor clip and all, all those different things. But I, I've been in situations where asking him a question on the teleconference where I, I just get dunked on in two seconds. I had to learn very early on, you don't ask Saban comparison questions because he's gonna wiggle out of that and find a way to just totally put it in whatever direction he wants and you're gonna feel really stupid afterwards. But it is difficult to learn that. But you you know you, you bring that up. But about how different that is to have that one-on-one setting with a coach compared to being in that 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 moment and being able to kind of capture all of it. Were you able to be on the field, one, for the for kick six, and then two, how did you survive it, the, the field rush afterwards?
2: Ha <laughs> ha, great question, yes. Obviously, when I, when I go to speaking events and stuff, that's probably the number one question I get from the, the folks in the audience. You know, I've got a question like, you know, what what's your favorite game? Like what was what was the biggest game you ever covered? What was the most exciting game? And of course, kick six, I mean, how could you not say that game? Um, you know, just being so historical, so monumental, just something I mean, that was still early in my career, so that was twenty thirteen. Um, so so my I guess third full football season and I'm still bright eyed and bushy tailed and, you know, hadn't experienced anything quite like it. And I'll tell you, it was <sighs> I just remember specifically being on that, you know, close to the the back of the end zone. Um, Obviously, we were, you know, a little to the, I guess, right of the back of the end zone and kind of the corner and the kick fall short, um, you know, and I I watched Chris Davis field it. And it's kind of interesting because when you're down on ground level, you know, while a lot of people think that's like the best view in the house, it can be in certain situations, but then of course he takes off and it's almost like he's like eclipses this horizon. And I'm like, where is he going? Like, is he going to get there? You know, and you're watching him just like skirt off into the distance, like, you know, and, and what is happening right now. And I remember my good friend, Jim Dunaway, um, you know, we used to work with me at CBS 42 and he was standing next to me and he goes, well, like here goes our chance at going to a national championship because that was the last national championship of the BCS era. And so we all were pretty much banking on the fact we were going to go out to Pasadena with the Crimson Tide, punching the ticket to the national championship with the win. And then that didn't happen. And of course, you know, the the rest is history and that, you know, Auburn ends up making it after Ohio state ends up losing in their conference championship. So all that to say that was like this flood of emotions and it's almost like in slow motion, right? You're like, how can you process 20 different thoughts in the matter of 10 seconds? Right. And then, you know, one thing I still want to know, Connor, and like, this is the one question I, I would love to ask Chris Davis himself. And I've actually, you know, run into him in different situations. And I feel like I need to just buckle up and ask him this question, but like, how do you run that far? And then, get into the end zone you're obviously on the ground you get the largest dog pile on top of you that you've probably ever experienced in your entire life how are you still breathing how are you a breathing human being at that point like i just don't (laughs) understand like maybe it's adrenaline i guess but like and i get he's got a little bit of airway between him and you know his face mask but i'm telling you like i literally am panicking right now thinking about it. i'm not claustrophobic but like Oh, my gosh. Like, I would just love to know how he survived that after, you know, completely emptying out his tank and then having all those, you know, guys on top of him. You know, if you add up the, the weight on top of him, it was probably enough to just crush him and disintegrate him into a million pieces. <laughs> um, but it's, it's just crazy when you think about it. And then, you know, coming full circle. So my job on the sidelines to kind of give you insight at the time so Jim Dunaway and Patrick Claybon, whom I also worked with at CBS 42 at the time, uh, were out on the desk, and my job was to get, like, player interviews. So I was supposed to get players coming off the field amidst the pandemonium. Oh, well, here's the deal. When you've got, like, thousands of, you know, maybe a little inebriated, uh, you know, college football fans that are storming the field, going nuts, you know their team just won the Iron Bowl in this epic historical moment. You have a camera in your hands well they're gonna they're gonna love on you a whole lot more, and I will tell you it was to the point where I was literally elbowing people. I was knocking people out of my way. Oh my gosh, like <laughs> out of the way I gotta get to the players so I was literally suffocating, and I kid you not. I like had this this like vision of like these headlines in the newspaper the next morning. Um, the digital headlines, whatever in in that time the time frame, um, like reporter dies in sea of people, because I literally was like suffocating. <laughs> I mean, I literally was like, I can't catch my breath. I'm like going under. It feels like I'm being waterlogged right now. I can't like, I can't share this air with this many people. What do I do? Um, it was definitely a wild feeling. But what we did, our our, our tactic was, we found we found like the police escort and they were escorting the players off the field. So we were like, okay, we're going to follow you. So we kind of tethered to them and were able to get to a safe spot to do the interview. So nevertheless, um, (sighs) I'm out of breath talking about it. Wow. Um, It's crazy. Uh, But it's certainly one of my favorite moments, one of my favorite games. And I just remember my phone blowing up that night from my friends all over the country, just like, Oh my gosh, please tell me you're at this game right now. This is incredible. And I'm like, yep. Pretty awesome stuff. So, um, definitely one of my fondest memories of being on the sidelines, for sure.
0: What many people don't realize is you don't just wake up and get an ESPN job overnight. You you have an extremely unique background, and you've been pretty open about the the turning point in your life and how that set you on a unique path. Would you be able to kind of go back and take this in whatever direction you want, but kind of? Um, outline just some of the some of the turning points that, that you had to, to get you to where you're at right now.
2: Yeah, and I appreciate the opportunity to be able to share because I do feel, as I mentioned and alluded to earlier, you know, it's it's the art of storytelling and we get the opportunity as reporters, broadcasters to tell stories. And I believe stories have the ability to have a positive impact on the lives of others. And that is part of. What I've learned in the process and journey and the disappointments and the tragedies that have occurred in my life um, that, you know, I never saw coming. And I think that, you know, is the unfortunate part of, you know, this life that we live in. We're all faced with something, but we all have a story and overcoming that, finding resilience, figuring out what our next steps are, the next direction we're going to move in is you know, half the battle. And for me, um, giving you the very footnotes version to kind of get into the sports career, um, you know, believe it or not, I actually wanted to be a sports doctor growing up. That was like my dream. I was a a, a gymnast my entire life, um, which people are always shocked by because I'm five foot nine, way too tall to be a gymnast. But uh, nevertheless, I own it. I was probably one of the tallest gymnasts on a D1 roster. I went to Rutgers on scholarship and you know, that, that was a dream of mine, you know, the Olympics was out of reach, but I knew maybe college scholarship would be possible. And I wanted to be a sports doctor and figured at least, you know, part of my school could be paid for, um, you know, or an athletic trainer work with a sports program because I was accustomed to being injured my entire life, you know, in gymnastics, the ups and downs, the the body aches, the the pain that I went through, but just, you know, the, the rehabilitation process. And that was something that always interested me. So, That was my aspiration. And a lot of people in the sports business and people that I talk to, good friends that are in the business, you know, were essentially born and grew up with a microphone in their hands, right? And don't get me wrong, I was a performer, but my performance was like out there doing, you know, tumbling and, you know, dancing around on the floor, swinging bars. I never had that, you know, vision of being on the sidelines covering a, a, you know, a football game or a gymnastics meet or basketball or whatever it may be. But that changed when, you know, kind of my story evolved and, and tragedy struck when I was a freshman at Rutgers. So, you know, I had a really close relationship with both of my parents. We, we were super tight. Um, you know, when I went off to Rutgers, like there was not a day that went by that I did not call my parents, talk to them on the phone, have a conversation. My mom knew everything about what I was doing at the gym, wanted a play-by-play, needed the full commentary. And, um, you know, unfortunately, I got a call one night um, from my father that my mom had passed away And it came unexpectedly because I just hung up the phone with my parents a few hours before that, and everything seemed fine. And he called to inform me that my mom had passed and that he'd be at the airport to pick me up. And unfortunately, he never did show up. And my dad, too, passed away. And as you can imagine, it just left myself and my family just completely, like, like, unbelievably, like, guilt-stricken. Uh, uncertain of what happened. How could this happen? What happened? So many questions. And really, it took a long time to really find the answers to that. And even still to this day, you know, 18 years later, we're still looking for the answers of what happened to my parents and how it happened. But essentially, both my parents um, passed away from prescription drug overdoses. They were both, uh, you know, going to a pain management doctor to help them to cope with the pain they were going through. They had a lot of chronic pain. My mom had degenerative disc disease. My dad had some, you know, chronic back pain. Also, both of them battled in depression and, as you can imagine, being in pain. So at some point in time during that uh, three-, four-year period when they were going to this pain management doctor, they became reliant on their prescription drugs, and ultimately it took their lives. And, you know, looking back on it, it just, you ask the question, like, how could this happen? how could I not see this? How could I not, you know, wh- where, where were the signs? And of course, hindsight's always 20, And it's easy to look back now and say, well, yeah, you know, I, that kind of makes sense. Or, you know, I kind of saw this, my dad used to, you know, fall asleep real easily. And, you know, in my mind, it was like, he's tired from work, but in reality, you know, he was, he was coping with his pain through prescription drug use, but they're prescription drugs, right? So they're fine. They're okay. Like the doctors prescribe them. That's, you know, that's what it's supposed to do. Um, so, of course, you know, you go through all these questions in your mind. Well, the biggest thing for me was now now what? W- what next? Like, do I go back to school? Do I go back to Rutgers? Like, do I stay home? Do I take some time off? What do I do? Well, the best thing that I could come up with, and, of course, my aunt, my uncle, my mom's sister, um, my auntie Linda, really just kind of sat me down and said, hey, you've got to go back to school. And it was the realization I've got a commitment to myself, my school, my you know my teammates, my university, and ultimately that's what my parents would want. So two weeks after you know laying both my parents to rest, I went back to Rutgers, and it was a roller coaster ride trying to figure out what am I going to do? You know I'm taking these biology and chemistry classes and not performing well whatsoever. My GPA was tanking. Well, as we all know, as collegiate athletes, if you don't keep your GPA up. I'm going to lose my scholarship, lose my scholarship. I don't. I can't afford to stay in school. I don't have any money. You know, I'm on my own now. And so it was this crazy long process, about a year and a half of just struggling, suffocating, you know, angry, you know, sad, grieving, and just lost that I finally realized, like, maybe I need to switch gears here and, and change course with my career and find something I love and I'm passionate about. And I really found that through the resources I had at Rutgers of kind of figuring out what I'm good at, what am I gifted at, and, you know, communication being one of them, you know, my energy, my personality, but ultimately, you know, just the ability to connect with others and build and establish relationships, and that's where I realized, like, oh, this could be an awesome career, and, you know, getting to it early, it's like, yeah, you know, sports reporting, I get to cover, like, some of the coolest games, I get to be on the sidelines, I get to talk to all these coaches and athletes, but now as I've matured and grown into, you know, a 36 year old woman now, and you know, with, with several years of experience, I realize it's so much more than that. It is the story that's being able to be a voice and a platform for others and to make a positive impact on the lives of others. Because I don't know about you, Connor, but when you think about where we were a season ago and the fact that football season wasn't going to happen, it was more than just the fact that like football is just not going to happen. Like, athletics and sports and the, you know, the world shutting down, like this is a place that people come to unite. You know, they come together to unite, to, to, to cheer for something. You might not cheer for the same team, but you cheer for the athletes. You cheer for the coaches, the fans, you cheer for the the sport. And all of a sudden that was about to be taken away from everyone and was, you know, when things were canceled. And I think that really kind of helped reel it back in and helped me to realize just how, grateful I am for what I do, but also the ability to be able to give that to other people. To me, it's a gift on game day Saturdays to be able to stand there and give people a game that they can watch from home and cheer on players and coaches and the people that are all behind the scenes.
0: Anybody who has ever lost a parent knows that no two situations are exactly the same um, but one of the things I felt, and maybe you could speak to this as well, was that, you know, and you kind of hinted at this, was in the aftermath for me when my dad died, sports felt sort of pointless to me for a bit. And it took me a few months at least to really feel joy in them again. And when your work overlaps with that, that's really difficult. And I think anybody that has watched you sees this joy and you look like you're having the time in your life with, with what you get to do you know, have you had those moments since then where where the joy just wasn't there? Or has that been something that's that's been a constant since you've had, to, since you've endured this this tragedy in your life?
2: Well, first of all, you know, I appreciate you sharing your story and giving us a look into how the loss of your father impacted you, because you're right, everyone faces tragedy. Um, we We lose a lot through our lives. You know, that is part of life, but, you know, a lot of times you can't prepare for it. You can almost never prepare for it. And then when it happens, how do you prepare for the aftermath? Right. And the feelings that you felt and the discouragement of like, what's the point. And I mean, I have been there. I'm, I'm right there with you. Like, what's the point? Like, what am I even doing here? And you know, it was to the point too, where when I was at Rutgers, like my coaches and stuff were like, Lauren, like, you've got to get it together. Like we're here to help you, but like no more hall passes. Like, you know, it was kind of like, let's throw a pity party for myself. But at the end of the day, like, I've got to be the one to step up. I've got to be the one to stand up and take that first step. I've got all the resources around me. And I truly feel that through this process, there are days where I'm tired. I mean, you know, before, before we hopped on this podcast, I was telling you about all the meetings that I had leading up to this. I have been talking, listening, taking notes for the last four hours straight. And there's times where you go to bed and you're just like, oh my gosh, what I would do to have a day off right now but then you kind of wake up the next morning and it's that excitement again of like, okay, it's a new day. And, you know, how am I going to, how am I going to attack the day? How am I going to honor this day? How am I going to, you know, embrace this time and do something that I love and what's the alternative? And I think we all do the whole, the grass is greener on the other side, right? You can think about, well, I wish I was here. And I used to get caught up in that so much, like the comparisons of, you know, well, you know, I'm, Sitting here at CBS 42, and I'm watching College Game Day, and there's Sam Ponder, like we're a year apart, and she's already on College Game Day. Like, whoa, like that's crazy. And I'm sitting here at the local CBS affiliate, like maybe I've missed the mark. Like maybe I'm not meant to, you know, my ceiling is an ESPN. Maybe, maybe that's not the direction I'm going to go. And I got caught up in all these comparisons and caught up in my age and where I was at in my career. And then I took a step back and realized, like, you know, I've got to focus on me and what I can do. And I got to embrace every bit of it. So it doesn't matter if it's a, you know, primetime matchup on, you know, ESPN or SEC network, or if it's a midday game that, you know, may not draw as many viewers, like I'm out there to do a job. And the excitement of that is something I have, you know, that I feel like I don't have to remind myself of it often. It naturally comes to me, um, you know, but there are, you know, times as any human that you get tired and you get exhausted and you're like, ah. Oh, but I do find that a good night's rest and then waking up the next morning and just, you know, saying some prayers and realizing, like, hey, like, this is awesome. Like, I get to do this, um, you know, kind of brings brings things full circle. And to be honest with you, yeah, going out and covering the games is so awesome. Like, I love it. Like, that's that's the cool part because that's putting the big bow on it, right? You've prepared all week, and literally you prepare so much, and you have all these notes, and you may end up using, like, 10% of them. So that's kind of like the the reward at the end of it all, when you get to actually go out and perform everything that you've been doing and and creating all week. But I also try to remind myself and and to take note and to really like open my eyes and ears and my heart to when I'm in these meetings and get to have a conversation with the quarterback of a team and just watching the way they talk about the game and their relationships with their parents. And, oh, you know, just talking to a Jacksonville State player, um, you know, just talking about his relationship with his mom and how she's just, you know, uh, like kind of the the quarterback behind the scenes and the one that's, you know, constantly, why'd you do this? And how did you break this down? And what were your thought processes here? Like, to me, that is so awesome, too, is just being in the moment during these meetings, these moments that may never see the light of day uh, that makes this job so special. So as much as I'm tired and exhausted and I've just done 20 meetings in a row, I also take that time to realize like, this is, this is their moment, you know, and and I get to be a part of that. It's really special.
0: Great perspective to have, I think in this job and something that a lot of people in this business can, can sort of, sort of lose, lose sight of. So I, I want to close you out here on some rapid fire questions, just five questions. First thing that comes oh, to mind, <laughs> does that work for you?
2: Okay. Yeah, full disclosure, y'all. I wasn't prepped on these beforehand, so forgive me if I uh, go sideways on these. You know, sometimes people send me the rapid-fire questions in advance, and I'm like, oh, that's like the cheat sheet. So I'm ready. Let's go. All
0: right. First one, this isn't easy. This is a softball for you. You just got married. Fall weddings, yay or nay?
2: Fall weddings. No, heck no, you can't do a fall wedding. We're in football season. You know how many weddings I've missed because of stinking <laughs> football season? Like all my teammates at Rutgers, like, sorry, decline, can't come. Like that's just been like my full, like, my go to. So, no, can't do the fall weddings. But by the way, I had two weddings to the same man. But, you know, I did the COVID wedding in May of 2020, did the celebration um, back in our hometown near uh, at Mountain Lake in Pembroke, Virginia, which was beautiful in the mountains for my second one. So, you get to ask the rapid-fire question, I get to give you the long, blown-out answer. There you go.
0: <laughs> that's, that's awesome. All right, so you're, you're in this realm then. You, you know, having been through this process, best wedding food is what?
2: Ooh. Okay, so we had a mac and cheese bar, and I didn't get to yes. eat any of it, but I will say what? when I actually got to taste test it like two years ago when we were planning the wedding the first time, Oh, my gosh. It was so good. Um, So that's a pretty good food. But can I just tell you one of my favorites? Here we go. Ready? Candied bacon. 100% candied bacon. And I will go back to, I'm going to throw this out to you, 2013, Pasadena, when we were there for the national championship. You know, the media members get together in the little room and and everyone's done working and they put all this great food out. It's like 2 o'clock in the morning because it's like, you know, middle of the night. They put out a bacon bar. And that was probably my first experience with candied bacon. And I kid you not, I was like, what is this? It was incredible. So that would be my go-to. We did not have candied bacon because it was kind of a last-minute thing at my wedding. But we did at some other celebrations that I've had before. And I'm all about some candied bacon.
0: That's a great answer. Had some of that in Denver a few weeks ago, and I, I, same exact thing. Like, this should be illegal. I shouldn't be allowed to have this right now. This is a little no, bit. No, it's too terrible.
2: Big. Like, you literally might have inspired me to go to the store and buy bacon and make some kiwi bacon. <laughs> that will be my celebratory pregame meal um, coming up. So,
0: there we, there we go. All right. Um, SUNY Lee, you will cover um, over under 15 SUNY Lee events just this year alone.
2: Oh, my gosh, I wish. My goodness, I would love, 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 love to be able to cover that. Obviously, with gymnastics season, don't know what that's going to look like. But let me tell you what, like Auburn got themselves a pure gem. Like what an incredible story. And I'm going to say this as someone that followed that whole deal with Simone Biles and, you know, just watching that all unfold um, broke my heart. But then to see in many ways, and this is how I perceive it and viewed it, as much as Simone Biles had to sit on the sidelines and, and watch, in many ways, it was like a gift to say, you know what, Suni, like my dream was obviously to come in here and win a gold medal, couldn't do it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna help you get there, and just to see her do that, and now Auburn get to capitalize on that. I mean, oh, just amazing. I think it's it's huge for the state of Alabama in general, obviously huge for Auburn, and recruiting can only go up for here. And I will say, while the NIL stuff is a little convoluted and people don't know where that's going to go, I will say for sports like gymnastics, the NIL stuff is beneficial because you would never have seen SUNY Lee on a a college campus had NIL not have existed.
0: That's a great point. That's a really good point. Olivia Dunn at LSU as well is also somebody who's going to be able to monetize that and make a killing off the NIL era for sure. Oh, my
2: gosh. Absolutely. Yep.
0: All right, uh, two more for you. Nick Saban will coach until he's 80. True or false?
2: Oh my gosh. I'm going to say true. As long as he stays healthy, I can definitely see him hitting that number. Isn't this year the big 7-0? This
0: is the big 7-0, yep. Yeah.
2: It is the big 7-0, but can you imagine 10 more years of Nick Saban? There's a lot of people that'll be happy about that, but a lot of people that won't.
0: Yep, very very true. All right, last one. But I'm You're true. 20- I
2: think I think it's possible.
0: Yeah, I I agree. I I wouldn't have said that two years ago. Definitely saying that now. Um, Last one. Your 2021 SEC champion is who or whom? Whatever.
2: 2021 SEC champion. I I hate making predictions, but I'm going to have to say Alabama. I think it's most likely Alabama, Georgia in the SEC championship game and Alabama, Oh, man, if Bryce Young lives up to the expectations that we think he will, um, you know, I did cover the spring game. He's a sharp young man, had 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 several conversations with him. Um, You know, I think he's got the weapons around him. And I think this Alabama team is just full throttle, lock, load, reload. That's the mantra there. And I think we're going to see much of the same this upcoming season. And with a lot less, um, you know, hurdles, I think with, you know, the season hopefully being a little bit closer to normal than it was a season ago. And we get fans in the stands. Yeah. That's so exciting.
0: Amen. Cannot wait for it. Lauren, this has been absolutely awesome. Really, really appreciate the time. Best of luck with everything you got going on this year.
2: All right. Thanks, Connor. Good luck to you. I appreciate it. And uh, all the best uh, to infinity and beyond.
0: I'm now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is a good friend of the show, Chick-fil-A Peach Bowl President and CEO, Gary Stokin. Gary, I gotta say, what a difference a year makes. I know we're still working through how everything is gonna look with required vaccinations, negative COVID tests, uh, all those different things, but I'm looking at the positive side here. How much better is it to be preparing for two games this year compared to last year getting all three of your games canceled?
3: Well, you're right, Connor. Uh, This is about the time that we learned that uh, we weren't going to have any of the three conference or any of the three Chick-fil-A kickoff games, which was uh, a shame not only for the city of Atlanta, but for uh, all of college football and my staff, who had done such a great job of working on capacity levels, different budgets based on capacities, different protocols with all six of the teams. and mercedes-benz stadium so um, but perspective wise uh we lost a lot but people lost a lot more in losing lives and losing loved ones so uh it did prepare us to put on the chick-fil-a peach bowl game in december uh albeit only with 25 percent capacity but we learned a lot and uh we're hoping this year that we can move forward and get back to uh whatever that new normal is right
0: well, that's that's a good point that you bring up the new normal. I, I know you announced in May that you were going to have full capacity. Is the plan for today as we're talking here on, on a Wednesday to still have full capacity or will there be any sort of requirements, proof of vaccination, negative COVID test or are you guys still figuring that stuff out?
3: Yeah, we're, we're talking, um, which is regularly scheduled with uh, four teams this week. Uh, We just want to make sure that we understand what their protocols are with what they're doing at home games, what they're comfortable with with their staff and their players, their bands, their cheerleaders, their media. And uh, we'll take all four of that information in. Then we meet with uh, Mercedes-Benz Stadium on Monday to go over, you know, their protocols, what they've learned from Atlanta United games and Atlanta Falcon games. And then we'll come out Monday, Tuesday at the latest, probably with um, what the protocols will be for this year's Chick-fil-A kickoff games.
0: The good news for you is that from a logistics standpoint, at least on the SEC side, it's, it's pretty favorable in that department where Ole Miss had the announcement 100% vaccinated. I know Bama is over the threshold as well. I'm not saying that, that this is going to come up, and I hope for, for your sake. I absolutely hope it doesn't after what you guys went through last year. But w- would a team have to forfeit if they have too many COVID absences? Would, how would that determination come down?
3: Well, those are some of the conversations we're having with the four teams. Um, And, you know, the luxury we have in Mercedes-Benz Stadium is we can either close the roof or open the roof. So we can have an open-air facility or, you know, if it's inclement weather, we could have a closed facility. So all that will go into uh, final decisions next week.
0: Have you guys had an open-air kickoff game in recent memory?
3: you know we have never for the bowl or kickoff game yet had yeah. the opportunity to open the uh open the roof so um yeah i know they they have been this year for united and i think they did for the falcon exhibition game earlier uh this this uh august
0: so is that something that you? I mean, you guys are prepared to? Because the the thing came up with with Chris Peterson a couple of years ago. I remember. I guess that would have been what twenty eighteen, where the Washington coach makes the request that that the that the that it's a dome atmosphere, which like you didn't have to do, but that still came out anyways, and that was kind of a, an interesting move on on his part, wanting to control the environment as much as possible. Didn't end up mattering against against Auburn that day. But um, are are those conversations that like you guys are very open to? Like should we expect to see that kickoff game with the roof open, or is that conversation not happened yet?
3: Yeah, we haven't had that yet. Still doing our homework with four teams and Mercedes-Benz, but we do have that luxury. Uh, and with respect to, you know, the coaches and the ADs, you know, when you talk to them, and obviously we have relationships which have paid off putting on these Chick-fil-A kickoff games or our Peach Bowl Challenge golf tournament with the coaches, you know, you want to hear what the coaches have to say, what they think, and in that case, Chris, obviously, because up where they're from, Seattle, they don't practice in the humidity that an Auburn does, or an Alabama, or a Miami, or Ole Miss, or Louisville, so uh, you know, that was uh, something that I thought was fair, um, not to open the roof uh, because they wouldn't have practiced in that kind of humidity. Um, But these four teams, obviously, are in the southeast, and have all practiced in heat and humidity. As a matter of fact, all four of their stadiums are open air, so um you yeah, know that wouldn't be much of a transition if we did go in that direction to have an open air stadium with these four schools.
0: So on a, a non-COVID note, I love getting into the background of how some of these matchups come together. And I remember talking to you a few years back about the Florida State-Alabama game and, and how that was, that was the, the roots of that go back way earlier than people even realize. Tell me the origins of how you created the, the the Ole Miss and Louisville matchup because this thing was agreed upon back in September of 2017. And that was while Bobby Petrino was still at Louisville. But it was two months after all the Hugh Freeze escort scandal stuff broke out. Were your negotiations for this game with Freeze or was it with Ross Bjork who who stepped in? Like how did all of that work with so many moving pieces at Ole Miss?
3: Yeah, the Ole Miss was uh, Ross Bjork. Um, Ross is a friend going back to his days at Miami and then UCLA. uh, And then obviously at Ole Miss. Uh, Ole Miss has a huge alumni base in Atlanta obviously a recruiting base for them and um, you know, uh, they like playing in a big type of atmosphere um, and on the Louisville I know I uh, talked with Tom Jurich and Tom was uh, very bullish about playing in this game for his brand as well as the Louisville people love coming to Atlanta this is where they won the uh, basketball national championship and they they too have a big alumni base here, so and, and it's also a recruiting uh, area for them. You know, Georgia is close to uh, taking over California and the number of kids matriculating on college football scholarships. So most of these coaches want to get down here for recruiting purposes. And they also know that, you know, this brand, particularly the Monday night game, you know, uh, it's, it's seen nationally as people settle in after their Labor Day uh, festivities uh, with an eight o'clock prime time on a post TV slot, it just gives great exposure nationally for both brands. So um, we like the ACC-SEC matchup. Um, we've done it most years, except for the Auburn, you know, Washington game because Auburn was going to be top, uh, Washington was going to be top ten that year. And then next year we'll start the season off with uh, Georgia, Oregon, um, which uh, Mario Cristobal coached in the kickoff game when he was at Alabama and saw, you know, what a great opportunity it is. So when he got out to Oregon, we talked and he said, yeah, we'd love to play in it. So um, you know, we'll, we'll start uh, this year's comeback season of college football with our three games, the two Chick-fil-A kickoff and one Chick-fil-A peach bowl. And we'll have five of the six teams playing in our games it will be ranked top 25. Next year, we'll start the season with uh, uh, three of the four teams, Georgia, Oregon, and Clemson playing Georgia Tech, and we'll start the ACC schedule off next year with Clemson-Georgia Tech on Monday night. And then at the end of the year, we'll have our CFP playoff semifinal game, where two teams will be in the top four. So next year, five of the six teams will be in the top ten that will be playing in our three games. Um, and when you put on top of that, the potential Georgia Tech getting ranked and then having the SEC championship here where both those teams are typically top 10 it's uh, quite a lineup of college football the next couple of years in Atlanta.
0: You have the perfect Monday night game after opening weekend where everybody's like, ah, you know, that was great. Now we got to wait a whole other week. Oh, no, by the way, we get to watch this Ole Miss offense. In a, on a national stage Emily Cunningham is going to be really fun to watch as well the Louisville quarterback but what a massive win it was for you I'm sure to watch what what became of Ole Miss in 2020 with Lane in year one I, I said they were my favorite team in all of college football to watch because they were kind of like tequila just like a non-stop thrill ride start to finish so I, I always got to ask you know we, we mentioned the Chris Peterson request did, did Lane have any special requests for you ahead of this game
3: well, Lane, Lane's a good guy. We, uh, we obviously uh, knew Lane um, from Tennessee. When uh, he was at Tennessee, they played in our Chick-fil-A Peach Bowl. So we built a relationship there and then maintained that friendship when he was at Alabama as offense coordinator. And then uh, obviously now with Ole Miss. So um, Lane's a good guy. He's uh, exciting. Obviously his offenses are prolific. And, uh, you know, when you talk about three of the top five quarterbacks in the preseason Heisman uh, race are playing in this first game of ours, and Malik Cunningham's probably one of the top 10, 15 quarterbacks in the country. So, you know, to have the number one quarterback in the SEC in Matt Corral and then to have Bryce Young start his first game here and then to have De'Ara King in his sixth year, coming back from injury and um, you know those three are in the top 5 of the Heisman talk so yeah it's it's going to be uh, going to be a fun atmosphere in, in Mercedes-Benz Stadium that's for sure
0: You finalized the Alabama-Miami agreement for this one back in September 2017. At least that's when it was announced, just like with Ole Miss and Louisville. I've told the story before about your relationship with Saban, how that kind of goes back to his LSU days, and that's why he's always been so loyal to you and always wanting to play in this game. And I mean, the guy has dominated year after year. i got to say, though, Gary, that Bama non-conference schedule, it is full to the brim moving forward. Saban kind of looks like he's changing Alabama scheduling philosophy with the idea of expansion on the way with the playoff. H- has he told you that that's his approach? Like, have you had those conversations because man, it, it seems like he is sort of doing a, a pivot off of what he did during the 2010s. Yeah,
3: I, I think, um, you know, obviously Greg Burns been involved in that, uh, decision-making process when he came in as AD. Um, I think for two reasons, most ADs have now looked long, um, they look forward in, in their scheduling uh, mentalities and philosophies. Number one is uh, I think our game has changed the face of college football on the front side of the season, our kickoff games, uh, because you know fans get the opportunity to either attend or to watch on TV Great matchups. I mean, we've had, you know, ranked teams in every one of our kickoff games. Um, And so I think AD saw that, and fans uh, were desiring not to go to those first couple games that people used to schedule in the past that were kind of non directional schools. I don't want to disintegrate them, but, you know, you're sitting out in 95 degree temperature and the score was 55-0 at halftime, and, you know, they're pulling their starters at halftime. Um, you know, I think people got tired of that, especially after seeing some of the games we put together. So now, fast forward, you're now seeing games like Clemson and uh, Georgia Tech starting the ACC conference schedule in the first game in our Chick-fil-A kickoff games. Um So I think AD's looked at that and said, well, number one, we got to keep our season ticket base strong because with a strong season ticket base, uh, you have obviously the ticket revenue, but you also get donor revenue off of that. You get merchandise revenue and you get concession revenue. So there's four income streams that come off having a strong home schedule. I think secondarily, uh, and with the advent of everything being on TV, you know, a lot of people are staying home watching those first one or two games that weren't big-time games, right? Um, secondly, I think with the advent of the CFP expansion talks, a lot of the ADs saw that there was going to be expansion. And so they said, hey, we can lose a conference game, and we can lose a tough non-conference game, whether home or away, if it's to a good team, and still get a potentially an at-large slot with two losses. Unlike now, there's never been a team with two losses in the 14 playoff, current exactly. CFP playoff. So I think for those two reasons, ADs have started to look forward and say, hey, let's, let's schedule a tough home and home. We're blessed in that we've been able to schedule out through 2025 with some great matchups like, you know, uh, Georgia Clemson in 24, uh, Virginia Tech South Carolina in 25. Um, You know, there's games like that that are true to what our brand is. Um, We moved strategically to an ACC-SEC format when we made it into the New year Six in 2014, primarily because that had been so so successful for us in selling out, uh, because we have the number one or number two alumni bases of all the ACC and SEC schools living in Metro Atlanta. And then with easy access through three interstates that intersect in downtown, they can drive here rather easily. So we said, let's move that forward since we're not going to have that matchup in our Chick-fil-A Peach Bowl since the CFP will will select our teams for that bowl game. Let's uh, control what we can control and put ACC, SEC in the Chick-fil-A kickoff games. And we've done that on a regular basis with the exception As I mentioned earlier, getting an Auburn number six, I mean, a Washington number six, or next year getting an Oregon, who's probably going to be top ten, you know, we'll we'll get them if they're top ten teams to come in here and play. So, um, you know, and I look at Dallas, who followed us, and they had to go buy a game from Kansas State this year. Um, They bought a game from Kansas State against Stanford, to move it to Dallas to have a kickoff game. So, you know, we, we feel like with Georgia, Oregon, Clemson, Georgia Tech, Georgia, Clemson, uh, Virginia Tech, South Carolina, Tennessee, Syracuse, that we're we're in good shape for the next uh, you know the next five years. Now, after that, obviously, the alliance. I don't know what that holds going forward, um, and and where they go with the number of conference games they're going to schedule in the ACC, Big Ten, and Pac twelve. Um, the SEC, obviously, you know, with Oklahoma and, and uh, Texas coming on, they may move to nine or ten conference games. Who knows? Uh, I think the inventory is going to shrink, obviously. But uh, we hope that with our relationships, we can continue to, uh, to put on the Chick-fil-A kickoff game moving forward after 25.
0: Okay, so that's what I wanted to ask you about. I'm glad you brought up the alliance because it does feel like it is going to shift after that, and you know, take the alliance for what it is—a couple of buddies having an, an agreement where they looked in each other's eyes and says that we're, you know, said that we're on the same page moving forward As ridiculous as it is. If there is some truth to the scheduling philosophy, where they're not going to rip up these 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 games that are already locked in, but moving forward, if that is the pact, and it's it's like all of a sudden you can't get that SEC versus ACC match. Up, and all of a sudden you're like oh do we have to do like acc versus pac-12 or alternatively do you then try and say hey new sec teams that are potentially going to be forming a rivalry maybe it's like an oklahoma georgia type thing where you can do like an oklahoma georgia maybe that's a bad example because it's it would be in the state of georgia but like where you try and set up a neutral site deal within the sec and do kind of what jacksonville has like have you played out some of those scenarios yet and i realize this is pretty far in the future yet but this is kind of the way that that all this looks like it's heading
3: well I've looked at it the alliance and you know I could foresee instead of home and home why don't we do a neutral neutral and let's say and again nothing's been done but I'm just strategic strategically visioning what could potentially be and let's say we did a ACC uh uh, game versus the Pac 12 in um, Las Vegas. And then uh, that game was played the next year in Atlanta in the Chick-fil-A kickoff game. I like that. Uh, on a Monday night where ACC controls the ESPN Monday night game. And let's say we did an SEC Pac 12 game, you know, in Atlanta, and then they reverted back and did an ACC Pac-12 game back in either Los Angeles or Las Vegas. Um, So instead of home and home, it could be neutral-neutral because you don't want to do a neutral game and then go. the other team's not going to go back to somebody's home home field the next year. So that could be a potential future uh, way of looking at this as well.
0: Gary, it sounded like the way that you said Dallas before that there, you like you had a little subtle jab at Dallas, which I like and I appreciate. Like Dallas came after us, you know. Dallas had to go to get a home game from Kansas State, so you're gonna have to get up on the get on the phone though and talk to these people, whether it's you know the people at Allegiant Stadium or, or whoever hosts a neutral site game, and you're gonna have to be like, maybe we need to work together to figure something out.
3: Yeah, you know, obviously we're 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 built on partnerships, whether that's with Chick fil A or it's with the ACC or the SEC or, um, you know, the CFP being all the Power Five conferences and even the group of five uh, teams that we've had. Um, we work together with them on recruiting them to, uh, and inviting them to come to our Peach Bowl Challenge. Um, we have a philosophy of giving back, and that comes in a myriad of ways. Um, we give back to college football through, you know, bringing the Hall of Fame here and funding it um, to get built um, we have a, a perspective to give back by uh, you know, creating this kickoff game to help the CFP and help college football make the next step forward um, I think you look at the CFP they have used our games um, as major uh, data points I need to go back to just 2017 when we opened Mercedes-Benz Stadium with the GOAT game with uh, Alabama Florida State, the greatest opener of all time. And Alabama beats Florida State number three, doesn't win the SEC that year, gets into the playoff because they beat number three Florida State, and then wins the national championship. So, um, you know, our game in 2009 when number five Alabama beats for number seven Virginia Tech, um, you know, that helped. Uh, you know, within the BCS to get Alabama ranked higher and get them in the in the playoffs. So, uh, you know, you got to you got to think about giving back to the game, and we've tried to do that through our golf tournament by giving back to the coaches' uh, charities and the schools in uh, the John Lewis uh, Courage of Scholarship endowed scholarships uh, with the Hall of Fame, with the kickoff game, and and now with the CFP New Year Six. So. I think if you get back to the sport, and uh, if that's your focal point, then I think everybody sees that. You build relationships, and the rest will take care of itself.
0: That's all well and good, and I totally understand that. What you could do to throw a wrench in the Alliance's plans would be to reach out and try and set up like an Alabama-Clemson matchup. In, in atlanta for 2027 or something like that and, I, and that might be a little bit tough for either side to agree to but if you did something like that and all of a sudden you were the reason that the alliance broke up like you, you those tickets would sell <laughs> itself and if you were the, the reason for the demise just one neutral site matchup thrown together and just like that you could be the guy to test the alliance
3: <laughs> well We'll we'll take that Clemson Alabama game right now twenty seven if you want to give it to us.
0: <laughs> I'll get on the horn with Saban. We'll talk to uh, is uh, Radakovich uh, at uh, at Clemson there, and uh, we'll 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 see what we can get going. Gary, is there is there a, a team though that you haven't been able to to maybe lock down lock in? I know it's a little bit different when you've had the ACC versus SEC matchups in the way that you guys have had throughout the CFP, but is there a team that you you're you're just kind of like waiting for and maybe that's different when you know you've been able to to schedule an alabama a georgia those are dream matchups for you guys in in your market but is there there one that has kind of escaped you to this point that you're still looking to to lock in
3: that's a great question um you know we like we like high-ranked teams obviously uh so to have georgia oregon scheduled to have you know um I think Georgia Tech will get ranked next year. To have them against Clemson opening open the ACC is kind of cool. Um, you know, Georgia Clemson, you know, in 24, um, you know, we have not had a Big Ten team primarily because the Pac-12, Big Ten, and Big 12 are tougher to schedule because, you know, it's a Rubik's Cube anyway, but in years when they have four home games, they have to schedule all three of the the non-conference games at home to get to seven to make their budgets. So it's very difficult to uh, to manage them. Uh, Love to get Notre Dame in a game. Mm. Um, But, yeah, just ranked teams and, and, uh, you know, great games. Uh, I think that's what college football wants to see. And because we have the ability um, with our payouts, The stadium that we have, the city we have, the support of the fans we have. Um, You know, I think we're one of the few bastions of hope to create those huge matchups that people want to see. Because obviously, that, you know, with nine conference games or ten conference games, if people move in that direction, you know, there's very few of those games that are going to be left uh, that are intersectional and, um, you know, big brands and nationally ranked teams
0: Gary this has been great really really appreciate the time as always hope everything goes well next weekend and uh, we'll talk soon
3: look forward to it Connor thanks so much for what you guys do I enjoy everything you guys report on college football and I appreciate you having us every year what's my destiny mom
2: you're gonna have to figure that out for yourself
1: Life is a box of chocolate's fullest. You never know what you're going to
2: get.
0: Figuring it out today, we're doing sports superstitions. I'm a little stitious, just a little bit. Figured that would be a good topic with the season starting up. I don't really have any current ones, though. Kind of realize this. Again, no real dog in the fight. I get to enjoy Saturday no matter who wins, which is a lot of fun for me. But back in my high school baseball days, Junior year, we were very mediocre in the regular season, basically like a 500 record going into the playoffs, but we were very talented, had three future D1 guys in our starting, starting lineup. My brother um, was one of them. He was first team All State, first baseman in Illinois. Very, very good. Your boy was the bullpen catcher. Not a particularly good one either. Could hit for a little bit of average from the left side, but no power whatsoever. Not very good defensively. Not, not, not a whole lot of value I'm really providing to, to, to my team. A hey, two sport um, athlete though. Yeah, uh, I, was, I was originally a three sport athlete. Oh. And then knee injuries and concussions prevented that from happening beyond um, sophomore year, mm-hmm. so. Yeah, we uh, we, di- we didn't get there quite to the level of uh, of others, but that's okay. That's why we're here doing this thing right now. Um, so basically, I say that because I wasn't getting any major at bats in in the playoffs when we got there. Mm-hmm. So instead of some like you know dry fit t shirt or something like that to wear under my jersey, something that would help your performance, I just wore this like Chicago Bears conference champs shirt when they lost to the Saints in the Super Bowl or lost to the Colts in the Super Bowl beat the Saints in the conference championship that's what I meant to say um, so I wore that every single game in the playoff why did I do it because it was the exact color navy as our jerseys which were like a little bit of that that darker navy kind of hard to match sometimes yeah. it might not Pelican sound navy. like much I know exactly what you're talking about because it's you know, so hard to match with stuff yeah You're like, everything's just a little bit off. I always hated that. I'm like, I'm not going to throw on a a navy shirt that's not quite that navy, too. And people are just like, oh, just wear a white shirt. I'm not going to wear a white shirt playing baseball. That's just, that's silly. Not going to do that. Mm -hmm. So um, I thought like, all right, this looks like it belongs. Well, I have this picture right behind me that I'm going to show you. That is it right there. Look at you, man. Yeah. So full of hope. So some bad radio right there. Um, <laughs> that was after we punched our ticket to go to state, and we had to win five games in the baseball in the Illinois high school baseball playoffs to get there. And my brother in that picture is actually holding the ball that he caught over the railing in foul territory for the final out to send us to state. And I get chills just. Thinking about that still, 14 years later. Yeah, didn't visual meme where,
1: where it's a picture of very small, very happy Connor with with his yes.
0: whole family, just looking like he's the king of the world. You love to see it. I had people tell me that was like the happiest they've ever seen me <laughs> in that specific moment, like years after the fact. Which you know, getting married and doing all that, uh, probably life changed a little bit, but it was unbelievable. And we, even though we didn't win a state title, we had to face neutrier, which they're like the New York Yankees of the Chicago suburbs. And I don't just say that because their logos are really similar. I think they try, they try and be the Yankees. They had, I think eight division one guys in their starting lineup. So we, we were never probably going to win that game. Um, but I will always tell myself that shirt was lucky, even though I was a bullpen catcher who had, Oh, I don't know, like 4% more impact on the actual game that was being played than the parents cheering in the crowd. So, you know, I still thought it was lucky, and I wore it religiously, washed it, didn't, didn't want to go unwashed, wasn't gonna do that, that whole thing. But mm-hmm. Will, did you have anything quite like that? Um, well,
1: so like, if you're, so I did MMA growing up, like that was my thing. And so we kind of have like walk up songs, like y'all have walk-up songs. And I was a very big, I always say like control what you can control. So I was that person that would always like do my raps the same way, do everything the same way. And then I would always like sit, like I would always envision like, walking up to a song and then just knocking somebody out. And so it's like, it, it's one of the best. <laughs> one of the best feelings is like, kind of walking from your little like tunnel or your area out into the ring and like to a song and like having people kind of like cheer yourself. So so it's, it's, I don't know, like going, like it's like mental reps, you know what I'm saying? That was my thing. It wasn't like a superstition necessarily, but it was like, I would just imagine like, okay, you know, right foot, left foot, you're gonna be thinking about this, you would look at this. And that way when you visualize success, it's easier to see it happen, so. That's a straight out of a, a Tony Robbins
0: <laughs> speech right there. Hey, listen here, man. We're we're champions of life, not just in the octagon. All right, we we if if we are nothing else, we are <laughs> champions of life here on the Saturday on South Podcast. I asked the Facebook group, one, do you believe in superstitions? Do two, do you have like a lucky jersey, maybe some lucky socks, lucky place on the couch that you like to sit while you're watching your specific team? Um, And then also, how far back do you have these superstitions and do you have more of them as an adult or did that just kind of fade off? So we got a lot of really good responses and I want to start with this one from um, Mary Haygood. Mary says, I bought our dog, Ron, in parentheses, Swanson. Swanson. Yep. (laughs) A Tennessee jersey in 2014. A month or so into that season, I made the startling realization that we lost every game when he wore the jersey. So he stopped wearing it. I still held on to it, though. And when Tennessee played Arkansas in 2015, we were at a wedding, and my mom found the jersey and put Ron in it. And that's why Tennessee lost. (laughs) I will not, she says in all caps, be convinced otherwise. Ron and his new brother, Jim, in parentheses, Halpert, of course, are now forbidden from ever wearing a Tennessee jersey of any kind. A lot of luck that's done us the past years, <laughs> but I don't make the rules go big orange. And then she's got a picture of the dog with, Oh, what a what a. This cute is the cutest dog. Y'all gotta go oh, to this Facebook. God. I
1: mean, it's got a little bow. I want that dog. If that dog's a Tennessee dog, I wanna watch Tennessee weather championship,
0: just so I know this dog is getting <laughs> good pets. Uh, If you have not ever heard a good enough pitch from us to join the Saturday Night on South podcast Facebook group, consider this the best one yet. Um, Just a picture of uh, of this very adorable dog giving a a quizzical look at the camera as if to say, why am I wearing this bow tie, Mom? Garantano again? (laughs) Oh,
1: gosh.
0: (laughs) Derek Walden says, I wear the same shirt as long as UGA is winning. Every Saturday, By week or not, I'm wearing that shirt. When we lose, I'll move on to another one to start another winning streak. Playing baseball in high school, oh, we can relate. I had lucky underwear. We'd play three games a week usually, and yes, they were washed after every game, so those underwear were in pretty bad shape pretty quickly. I don't want to say you're lying, <laughs> you stay. I don't want to assume that you didn't actually go through with washing underwear three times because that's a lot, man. I don't think anybody would fault you for not washing underwear three times. Now, if you're wearing that same pair repeatedly, it gets a little hairy. You got teammates. It's a dugout. You're in an enclosed space. Can't pull that off. There are some rough moments there that you're going to have um, with your teammates, but... I get that, totally get that. In baseball, the old slump buster trick, probably not for these airwaves that I should say that, but um, there is a an old baseball superstition that, uh, let's just say involves wearing a non-men's piece of uh, of an undergarment to break out of a slump. Heard that one, seen that one as well in a baseball locker room back in the day when I was interning for Indianapolis Indians and AAA. Real thing, real thing. Chris Sahore says, all the above, I wear the same jersey every game day with the same gator shirt on underneath, same socks, same hat. My fiance doesn't care nearly as much, but she knows she's got to throw her gator shirt on before kickoff once the game has started. For some reason, I feel like where I'm sitting or the volume on the TV is going to make a huge difference. Yep. Ridiculous, for sure, but what if it works? He's right. It might work. What if all the, the cosmic forces in the universe have to line up just perfectly so that Kyle Pitts can come down with a ridiculous touchdown and triple coverage? And it was because there was no distractions. One thing led to another. The volume on your specific TV didn't distract this thing that distracted that thing, that, and so on. i heard crazier things, man. Just saying.
1: I was talking about this the other day, because this is one of those things, this is why it's a good figuring out topic. It's like, you get older and you think to yourself, like, oh, that's stupid, I don't need to do that. I'll tell y'all firsthand, and during the 2019 NFC Championship game, this was when me and Brittany were long distance, and she stayed for the first half of that game. And the minute she left, that game went south. And I literally, she was like an hour or two other. I was like, Yo, you gotta come back. I don't care. I'll buy you a hotel. Just, just come back. I was like, you. I was like, I was like, I don't care. I can't explain it. I know you got school tomorrow. Whatever. You gotta. I, I see we we're, we're, we lost our rhythm. And like I was sitting here, you were sitting there. You gotta come back.
0: What if? And I don't know how close you were sitting, but you know, starting quarterback looks over and sees a a calming presence in the stands. (laughs) And all of a sudden, that guiding light just isn't there and they don't know how to function. These things matter. And we need to take them very, very seriously, of course. And especially now with full stadiums, do not underestimate your individual presence in those stadiums. Oh, I was at home,
1: no, 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 I was at home. That's what I'm saying, it doesn't make any sense. Like, I was just on my couch, she was next to me on the couch and she left. I was like, exactly what he was saying with the volume and everything, it's like everything when we're winning, we gotta take a picture of this and if we start losing, we gotta put it back.
0: Okay, so Florida Florida basketball 2006, when I said this before, when I picked them to win it all mm-hmm. and I kind of went out on a limb, I was in you know, bracket pools at school, As was like a high school junior, sophomore, whatever I was. And I had a certain position that I would sit on the couch. And I noticed when I turned in basketball's game of runs, I'd watch like Villanova go on a 10 to two run. Mm-hmm. And I'd be like, that didn't work. And then I would turn over and I would like, legit document this in my mind (laughs) and it worked because florida won it all that year so you're welcome all you florida fans and then they won it all again next year i don't know if i sat in the same exact spot but i had a real mental thing going through that where i was like ah you know what i need to be in this exact spot is the recliner up or down no we got to take that all into account right now that's very important Eric Netterville says, I don't really believe in sports superstitions, but if my team scores when I'm in the kitchen, I stay in the kitchen until the luck changes. Exactly. Because if you're walking out and you hear the roar of the crowd, that's when you know. If Gary Danielson is freaking out with your back turned to the TV, chances are you you played a part in that. I mean say what you want about gary danielson but when he raises his voice and gets way too excited about an on balance line (laughs) you know that you probably had some sort of impact by not being able to watch whatever play that was and that'll catch your attention so i don't hate that at all if you gotta stay in the kitchen the entire game if you are vandy and if you go up seven to nothing on alabama and you're in the kitchen for that touchdown if you're not in the kitchen the rest of the game I'm, i'm not talking just Oh, until Bama scores. They're going to score. But you stay in that <laughs> kitchen the rest of the game and you do whatever you possibly can to get that mojo on your side. Exactly. People need to t- need to take this stuff into account. They really do. John Houston Whitworth says, always wear a certain shirt. If we're down at the half, I change shirts. Pretty standard, all right. Nothing, nothing too crazy about that. Um, I wanna save Michael Darks for the very end here. Hold on, I'll I'll say this real quick. I'm sorry, were you to say something? My bad.
1: No, go ahead. Um, So you guys saw me at the SEC Championship in 2019 in my getup, and I think I've talked about this before, but it was like a throwback, like old school LSU baseball jersey, like one of the cotton ones. And then there was a, a, a shirt I had under it of MJ, like smoking a cigar after he won a championship. And I like added a little something to it every game. And obviously LSU went undefeated. Last year, I never put that on period. I was just like, Hey, this year, what like you I doing? got, no, because I knew the vibes were different Connor. I didn't want to burn uh-huh. my good luck, but this year it's coming back out. I and mean, then we'll really see. We've had a control group now. We've had the best season the LSU's ever had. And one of the worst ones I can remember. Now we reintroduce the X variant
0: or X variable and we see. Uh, don't be talking about variants right now, man. <laughs> Be careful about that. <laughs> Jay what he says. This was all true for about the first 45 years of my life. If I was sitting in Bama had a bad series, I'd stand. If they do well, I'd stand the rest of the game in my house in front of a recliner. They have a bad series. I'd sit and see if the luck changed. I never changed the channel during a commercial. I never watched the kickoff. Oh, that's interesting. If they have a bad play, I'd change the channel and change back to see if they do better. Incredibly superstitious for a Bama fan, but you have to remember, I remember watching the 78 National Championship game. So I've been with Bama for a long time and through some crappy years, that was a lot of responsibility on me to overcome Mike DeBose. Honestly, saving gets the credit but I'm basically the reason that Bama had done so well. You're welcome.
1: Man, if you just never watched Bama on special teams, they would be undefeated. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, last year, but last year though, no, no, no. No, no.
1: no I year, know, were... I'm, I'm just saying, through Saban's run, it seems like they lost every game on special teams, so add, other, add field goals, add and whatever to the, to the kickoffs thing, you'd have the happiest experience of all
0: time if you just didn't watch on special teams. So let me try this one on, since it's been debunked that Scott Cochran was the secret to Alabama's decade of dominance, <laughs> can we just give the credit to Jay Woody? Anybody opposed? Nope, I'm, I'm, you know what? He needs to be some type of honorary like mayor of Tuscaloosa. Yeah, I'm okay with that. I don't have that kind of uh, that kind of power, but we'll make that happen. Dex Kendall says, "I wear the same game day shirt without Washington, washing it until we lose. I'm a South Carolina fan, so I've been doing a lot of laundry the past few years, but I stank from 2011 to 2013."
1: <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's, that's my uh, favorite answer right there. It's like, yeah, you know, this has been pretty much, I've been living a normal life for the last couple of years, but those Spurrier years, I was ranked.
0: We'll get to a few more real quick. Uh, Chris Milan says, I have two. Used to have a third before moving to Georgia. One, I refuse to watch Bama games at my parents' house. The last one was the 2013 Iron Bowl, so yeah. Uh, Number two, I wear the same pair of underwear on game days. And then number three, the old one, is I would eat Chinese takeout before each game. The lucky underwear, uh, I change which pair it is after every loss. Good on you, long term, to not do the Chinese takeout before every game. Mm-hmm. Feel like that that should be more of a celebratory type of deal. Um, just you know, sometimes I'm not, I'm not assuming all Chinese food is like that, but oftentimes Chinese food doesn't always sit that well, particularly well. A lot of grease built up in there. You know, great in, in its in its specific moments, but doing that every game, I don't know. I, I think that was a good move to pivot off of that. I like that though, Drew Page. Drew says, I don't know if I believe in sports superstitions per se, but when I wear my Cubs jersey, they tend to lose by at least a couple runs less. Drew just had to bring up the Cubs, man. Just had to bring up the Cubs. Um, They're they're, they're gonna lose no matter what you're wearing. I was about to say, I'm glad you said it. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. no, that's that's sad reality. Um, Drew also adds, in 2016, I had to have my best friend watching every game in the playoffs with me or we were gonna lose. Okay, so I got I got a little stitchious back in twenty sixteen. I had to be I think I wore my Schwarber jersey every game. Every game of the World Series maybe it was. And if so I would rotate, I had, you know, a Maddox jersey, I had a, an Ernie Banks throwback jersey, I would have like a couple, you know, Cubs dry fit shirts, and I would just wear those into the SDS offices back when we had those down here in Orlando. Mm-hmm. And if one of them lost, like if the Cubs, when the Cubs lost in the, in the Cardinals to, to the NLCS, like lost a specific game, I, I would just, I or no, not in the NLCS, but the NLDS rather, they played the Dodgers in the NLCS, but I would just ditch that specific, that specific shirt or that specific jersey and just move on to the next one and stick with whatever works, but man, Whatever superstitions you have in 2016, if you're going through something like that, and this is, you know, I'll make the comp to Georgia this year. If Georgia fans experience a potential title run this year, you're pulling all the tricks out of the bag, man. (laughs) There's (laughs) nothing wrong with that. I am not going to hate on anybody who thinks that there is a certain way that you need to have your specific world for all the stars to align. We are we are in no position to question the cosmic forces of sports.
1: I had uh, the opposite of that one time. So I was I was dating this girl. This was in college. And our, my birthday is always around the LSU-Mississippi State game, which, you know, objectively, that's a team that LSU has really historically, like, handled. So I knew I'd have a good birthday weekend. Like, it's been whatever. Even when Mullen was there, they were kind of back and forth games, but LSU really, really came out on top a lot. And um, I brought this girl to LSU for her first game, and it was in 2014, the, the Dak Prescott year, uh, when they just— beat lsu like it was just bad and i was like i remember joking with her the whole time i was like yep you might be cursed and it's the worst when, when someone gets cursed and you gotta like either she eventually like we watched like another game where it ended up going the opposite way i was like oh so you're uncursed and it's like yeah people have talked about watching with certain people or watching at certain locations i couldn't imagine being the cause of someone thinking i'm cursed but it it's it's gotta be tough
0: being cursed is i don't know how you talk your way out of that because you probably can't even put yourselves in posi- put yourself in a position to be, be able uncurse, to get out of that, right? You, to be uncursed. That's if somebody thinks you're cursed, you, you're just done. You, that's just get that part of your li- that part of your life is gone. Right. <laughs> you need to find somebody else. <laughs> it's not happening because what, if it's a specific friend or something like that? I mean, I remember 2008 when I was a freshman in college. And I went to, um, one of my, one of my buddies who like lived, who I like, I met when I got to, when I got to college and he was a diehard Cubs fan from the suburbs of Chicago. So like, we kind of hit it off. Like he had, we had like a bunch of mutual friends and stuff like that. And so like me, and like one of my other buddies, we like, you know, we, we went to his dorm room and watched, I think it was game two or something like that of first round of playoffs and they're playing the Dodgers. And that was the day that Manny Ramirez hit one like 480 feet off his knee and after that, I was like, well, we can never watch games together because this was a tragic failure and <laughs> there is no way that this is ever going to turn out right. So, we, so then we, we just kind of like didn't and didn't ever you know, go back there because once you're cursed, you can't really get uncursed. Very hard thing to do.
1: I want to hear from like, like when Arkansas had that bad season or like Vandy fans, it's like, if you have just a bad season like that, the amount of things you cycle through. Oh, there's nothing Like, nope, gotta watch in the camera. Kitchen doesn't work, that one's out. Bathroom, we're watching
0: in the bathroom on the phone. Derek Mason even tried to do everything in his power, like, (laughs) I mean, and and that's not just talking about the Sarah Fuller thing. Like he rotates coordinators out. Like he, he fired his coordinator who was living in his house. Oh gosh. I didn't know that Derek Mason was Derek Mason was desperate, man. Like he he was desperate to get anything going in 2020 and it just wasn't going to happen for him. We'll end with this one. Michael Dark says, if I don't watch the intro to college game day, I will die. (laughs) All right. That's a little stitious right there, Michael. Little bit. I th- you might survive.
1: <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I, might. Just, I don't think I saw this one message. I love it when the message is just nice and symmetrical. It's just that. It's one line. If I don't watch the issue to college game day, I will die. <laughs> Fair.
0: And if and if you're not willing to go that route, you know what? It's like saying Beetlejuice three times. Certain things, you're just not going to test. You're just not going to mess with that.
1: If he's never missed
0: it and he's alive, can you disprove it? Nope. nope. I cannot. Michael, keep rolling with that. We enjoy all your comments in the Saturday Down South podcast Facebook group. Everybody should join the Saturday Down South podcast Facebook group if you have not done so already. Leave us a five star review. Like, subscribe. Go subscribe to our newsletter. Go subscribe to College Football Uncensored and Saturday Lives Forever wherever you get your podcasts. The schedule for next week, we're going to record on Wednesday with our first full SEC matchup preview pod of 2021. Pod will be dropping on Thursday morning, hoping to have a first time guest on a household name in college football so we'll kind of wait and see on that like i said join the facebook group hear your name red on air with figuring it out or bold and brash thanks guys talk soon